welcome to episode two of series three of Some Essex Lads and a Paralympian. Well, last episode, Henley Gray Thompson kicked off the new year with as much bang as I think it's possible in a pandemic. And for this episode, we're on the track once again with European gold medalist Nathan Maguire. Now, Nathan's story is pretty incredible. Um, as a kid, um, he went to bed with pins and needles and woke up the following morning with no feelings in his legs. During that night, his spinal cord was uh, attacked due to a rare condition and Nathan has permanently since been in a wheelchair. He took up basketball and then began a career in wheelchair racing, which has taken him to where he is now. Nathan, there's a quote um, I found, actually. You said, I believe my disability is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I wouldn't have travelled the world, met amazing people, or race for my country if it hadn't I'm lucky like to go to bed with I'm right and saying pins and needles and then to wake up the following morning with no legs at what eight years old I think it was yeah so I was eight uh, it was the 26th of October in 2005 um so I just said I, I went to bed with pins and needles on my feet and you know <clears throat> when you when you when you're young you know you, you just kind of you, you tell your parents and your parents are just like well we'll see how it is in the morning you know you're all right for now um you can go to sleep see how it is um and yeah I, overnight uh, my immune system attacked my spinal cord um it basically thought that my um my spinal cord was an illness um and destroyed all the nerves from T2, which is quite high up, which is kind of like mid-chest, um, all the way down to L1, which is kind of around your belly button. Um, so, you know, that kind of happened over a few days, really. Um, and the pins and needles moved up and up and up. And wherever the pins and needles was, I couldn't feel. Um, which is it's, it's quite scary when you're young, but I think it was probably more scary for my parents as opposed to me um as an eight-year-old you know you just kind of get on with it really don't you it's your it's your parents who are talking to doctors talking to nurses and actually yeah you're just kind of going with the flow really well you remember the date really well I mean I guess in reflection now you can look back at it maybe in a different way than you did then do you remember the day well when you were a kid or do you have just kind of flashbacks Um, overall well, I suppose it's really difficult now. I actually can't really remember anything before that day. Uh, I can't really remember ever walking. Um, like when I look at myself and I, I think about myself, I dream, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm disabled. Um, you know, it's kind of like I have been disabled my entire life. Um, and, you know, people say that they can remember loads of things from when they're younger, but I actually really can't. It's really weird. Well, the thing is, a lot of people that I've spoken to, they have been born with disabilities obviously you weren't but you were born were you born with this um thing that then affected you kind of late on or did it just come out of nowhere was there just was it something you did as a kid to make it you know that that was the case and no actually I was not born with it I was born completely able-bodied I was the same as everybody else I did all sports I did football I did athletics up to the age of eight um you know I was my auntie actually got married two days before I before the 26th of October and I was running around and there was no, no prior warning whatsoever. Um, my condition called transverse myelitis that happened to me, it, it only affects one in 28 million people. Um, and it's just one of the things that can happen. Wow. And it happens to me. <laughs> wow. I, mean, I guess looking back, that quote that you said, I believe my disability is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, is that quite an easy thing to say? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, as you said before, you know, without my disability, I wouldn't have had any of the opportunities that I have now. Um, I wouldn't, I, w- I would probably have gone to uni, turned into a, a massive drinker, like like most people do at university and played on my PlayStation, left, left university and got a job. And then, you know, that's all right, but that's kind of not the way I've kind of gone about it. And that's not the way I would like to. Um, and without my disability, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do what I do now and travel the world. I mean, was there was there a moment, um, I guess, for your parents, especially at that at that point? Because I guess they must have told you loads of stories about what had happened and kind of interpretations on that. Um, did they think that it was serious, kind of immediately, or did they think that you know this is just going to pass and then you'll be okay the next day? Or 
Well, you know, I think I was, I was kind of, the minute I was put in hospital, I was in intensive care. I was kind of on all sorts of wires and stuff. And I think my parents, they're just kind of happy I was alive. Do you know what I mean? And I think that for them, it didn't, it doesn't really matter whether I'm able-bodied, disabled, I've got, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter for them. Um, you know, their mentality was, right, now he's the same child but sat down. We need to work out what we can do with him. Now he's sat down. Um, I was discharged from hospital on Christmas Eve. And by, probably, I think it was the 5th of, uh, 5th of January, I was playing wheelchair basketball. Uh, <laughs> my parents kind of thought, right, this is you now. Let's learn to do everything that you could do before, just sat down. Um, so I, I started playing wheelchair basketball at Manchester Mavericks wheelchair basketball team. Um, and they, they basically just taught me how to do everything again, you know, pick things up off the floor, push a wheelchair that I didn't really know how, what, to, what to do, you know, just and, and meet people like me, people I could learn off, people yeah. who been through what I'd been through, people who were older, people who were younger. And we we're just kind of a group that, you know, knew, knew what everybody else had been through and threw a ball around for two hours every Sunday night. Uh, and it was kind of forgotten about, you know, all the hospital appointments and everything like that. They were forgotten about and you just had fun with people like you. I was about to say, it, it, it's a big change, isn't it? Because, you, you know, 26th of October when it first happened to being discharged on Christmas Eve, that's a long time. I mean, was that the whole of intensive care for that period? Um, no. So I was, I was thinking I was intensive care for two weeks. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, I stabilised. So my pins and needles went into my shoulders, into my neck. And wherever the pins and needles was, I couldn't feel. Um, it eventually moved down to kind of mid-chest, so T2. Um, so it's quite high up. Um, and that's where my disability level stayed. Um, and from there, I was put onto a ward, just a children's ward, um, monitored and, you know, had tests and they treated me with certain, like certain things, just try and work out whether certain things might work. Um, but ultimately, I kind of plateaued and then that was me. Uh, and there was, there was no, no changing at all, really. There was no threat to your life in that period or was there a real chance of that? Or uh, So I suppose there was initially when I was in intensive care. But after that, you know, I was kind of, I was just me. And, and I haven't changed since then. I think the only thing that's changed is my age. I don't think I've, my, legs, my legs have hardly grown since I was eight either. So I think, you know, I've kind of um, stayed the same since I was eight. And I guess like being you, like basketball, was that a big thing? You'd be a big sports fan when you kind of grew up. Were you a big like NBA fan at the time? Was basketball going to the Mavericks quite an easy decision? Um, I think, you know, to me, I'd never even seen basketball really. Um, I think... You know that it was my dad that kind of got me into wheelchair basketball. He he was just um, on the lookout for something that was team orientated because he always did team sports. Uh, he was also after something that was kind of energetic and and something that just kind of made you forget about your disability um, and would teach me how to live again. Um, so basketball, it was only ten miles from my house this team that my dad found online. And, and, you know, it was kind of brought to the forefront, I think, by Adi Adekatan. He was on the uh, BBC One advert doing wheelies. Um, and I think that was kind of... Basketball at that time was kind of quite in the, in the forefront. There was also a, a, a TV show on CBBC called The Desperados uh, at that time as well. Um, so, you know, not, that not, was, just, not just the drink then. Yeah, so it was... It was, it was kind of quite in the forefront at that time and it was quite visible and and yeah as I say the team was just around the corner so it was kind of quite easy to get to as well because the problem with disability sport is that they're just it's so hard to access because there's not very many hubs around the country and so I was quite lucky that there was one quite close real. I can imagine like even for your parents the house getting kind of wheelchair accessories and uh, getting those into the house must have been quite a sudden change and that 
you know, you're actually being at the Manchester Mavericks would have been like, oh, is it a case of, oh, these facilities actually exist on a high level? Or? Yeah, so, you know, um, we just lived in a normal house, just a, you know, a house with an upstairs and the bathrooms upstairs, everything was just a normal house. Um, so, obviously, there was obviously um, adaptions that had to be made and stuff. So, actually, I was quite lucky that my parents were in the, op- uh, the position to move house. Um, so... They, they moved to Chester. So we used to live in Manchester and they moved to Chester um, mainly because they found a bungalow that they really liked. Uh, the school catchment was quite good. And for the high school as well, the high school was quite an accessible high school. And so it was just kind of a natural progression for my parents to just find somewhere that we could live as a family and I would be the same as my brother and sister. Because that high school was Kirkby High School. And no, so I actually, I trained at Kirby High School, so I went to a school called Hellsby High School. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so Hellsby is uh, it's quite a big school. It's a school that's not far from where we live now. And they, you know, there was, there's 1,600 pupils there, so it's a really big school. And when you're the disabled person, you're, you're very visible as the wheelchair user. Um, but they, they were always really good with me. You know, they, when I first got there, the school was accessible to a degree, but not not as accessible as it is now. I was the first sale person they'd ever had there. Uh, out of six, out of sixteen hundred, <laughs> that was yeah, out of sixteen hundred pupils, I was the only sale person there. That's uh, cra- crazy thinking about that because you think there would be at least one or two other people. Like the school that yeah, I was yeah. at in Essex, there were three out of about eight hundred, but one out of sixteen hundred is. Ridiculous. Yeah, so I was the only disabled person there, um, and you know, they had to make adaptions for me. Uh, they actually they built a lift, they built two disabled toilets, they built uh, like you know like the food technology rooms. They, they built t- uh, uh, kitchens that were up and down. Did the same in the science rooms, um, so they were really really accommodating. And like from from there, what was the point for you where you kind of, you know, you're playing basketball at this point and then you go into wheelchair racing. What was that point where you kind of made that transition? Was it they kind of the independent side of it as well that came uh, into it? Yeah, I suppose, you know, my parents were always an advocate for trying every single sport you get the opportunity to do. Uh, so, you know, I, I swam with a team in Ellesmere Port, not far away. I, I did some rowing. I did some adaptive rowing. I also I tried water skiing. I tried wheelchair rugby. I've just tried every single sport and then... My parents were saying, try every opportunity given to you and then find your niche from there. Um, and, you know, I got the opportunity to try wheelchair racing and I quite enjoyed it because I was always one of the quicker players on a basketball court. So that then was kind of the natural progression for me to get in a race chair and, and, and be quick on the track as well. Was there a point where you kind of knew that this would be something which you could excel at or was it just a kind of a, prog- a gradual progression that you can have thought well if I if I get to this point then you know I, I can be as good as you know Paralympians winning gold medals yeah well I suppose I, I played wheelchair basketball and raced for years together alongside each other um, I was part of the GB basketball team uh, the under 25 GB basketball team um, as well as racing for the under, tw- under oh, okay. 20, oh. the under 23 GB team as well so it was kind of they kind of went alongside each other um, and they kind of complement each other as well, um, training-wise and just experience-wise as well. Is it the London Mini Marathon? Um, yeah as well so that's kind of you know wheelchair basketball is fast it's furious but then you've got the kind of the stamina side of kind of the racing as well kind of the you know the agility aspect um was that easy to kind of progress from you know fast acceleration to um to that because I know Hannah when I spoke to her she mentioned that you know you train like a cyclist that you train for the long distances and the short sprints come from that training was that similar in for you in that in that instance yeah so actually it worked out that i you know is the london mini marathon is the last five kilometers of the london marathon and um, 
And actually, I'd never actually done five kilometers before I got in that race. Uh, I thought 5K was so, so far. And now I do 5K in a warm-up. <laughs> at that time, you know, 5K was a really long way. Um, and, you know, I kind of entered the race because it's kind of, it's the natural progression for every wheelchair racer when they start young. They do the London Mini Marathon because it's such a great race. It's such a great opportunity to be able to push on the course that the London Marathon uh, races are pushing on, you know, and as well, the crowds are amazing. Um, and to be fair, the the competitor competitors that I raced against were really good as well. Um, and I think, you know, I entered the race watching these people that were I was going to be racing against warming up, thinking, oh, my God, they are so quick. They're so good. Um, and I just, I kind of <coughs> had a plan from the start was just chase everybody and see what happens. Um, I remember someone on the start line uh, t- turned to me on the start line and said, um, will you be waving at the Queen on the way past? Because uh, it was finishes up near Buckingham Palace. And I, I just kind of sat there in my head and thought, no, I'm, I'm, I'm here to compete. I'm, I'm here to push and, and I want to be up there with the guys that I'm racing against. Um, so, you know, I held in on there, held, held in there for the whole race, for the whole 5K thinking, oh my God, when is this going to end? It's so far. Uh, and then it came down to a, a sprint and, and then possibly it was kind of a basketball mentality of me, uh, made me sprint the finish and, and ultimately win. How many, how many people were in that race? So it's just split up into under-17s and under-14s. Um, so I was in the under-17s, I was 16. Um, and in the lead pack, there was six of us. Um, so, you know, now there's... It was first and second was me and Isaac. So me and Isaac actually trained together. Uh, so that's Isaac Towers. Uh, and he is... I think he's bronze medalist in world champs for T34 wheelchair racing and European, I think he's a European champion as well from Swansea. Um, so, you know, it was no mean feat to beat him. And I'd never beaten him in training either at that point. So, uh, hadn't, be, hadn't beaten him in training. And then you just, when it comes to the race, but, yeah, yeah that, that's quite a weird thing because I know some certain athletes, they, and I know this is going back a bit, but certain athletes in training, they can perform to a certain level, but then when it comes to the adrenaline rush of an actual race <laughs> that you can have, you can have overperform what you'd even expect to be doing was that, I'm guessing that was an instance for you in that case. Yeah. I think, you know, every race you go in, you want to win it. That's just, that's just, you don't do, you don't race unless that's what you want to be. Um, and I think racing always brings out that extra 10% of everybody, I think, because it's just the competitive edge and you want to win. Um, so, yeah, you know, you train the 100% that you always, always do. But then, the minute it comes to a race at a World Champs or something like that, you give 150% because you want to be on that podium at the end of that race. So, you win the race. Um, you miss the Queen, but you win the race. Um, what happens next? Do you get spotted instantly by people who say, right, this kid is going to go far? Or is it a case of just go back to the training go back to the drawing board and then sort of see how you do at the next event. Yeah, I think, you know, it was, it was that kind of thing. It was just back training, um, back to normality, back to what I've been doing, just everything normal, really. Um, you know, I, I raced the season as if that was my first season that I raced. Uh, so obviously the mini marathon was in April and then I did a, a normal racing season from there. I think that was kind of where I was kind of not scouted, but like I was noticed, you know what I mean? Um, by possibly like British Athletics and people like that. Um, and I think, you know, from there, that's just where it kind of blossomed really. And, you know, I, I'm still racing to this day. <laughs> was there an individual who picked you up from British Athletics at some point? Oh, that would be about 2015 before Rio, of course, around that time was there kind of an individual who did that um i think i suppose we had a, a british wheelchair racing coach who was jenny banks so she was our uh, head wheelchair racing coach in britain um, and she would put on uh, 
camps and bunch skills group sessions and things in Loughborough that, you know, kind of taught you how to race, not just as yourself, but as part of a team. Um, and I quite like that because it was, um, a bit, it was more for me like basketball than it was racing. Yeah. Because you were part of a team, you were training together and, you know, <clears throat> that really helped me. Um, and I think, you know, coming from that basketball mentality, you get invited to train with somebody, you go. That's just kind of what happens. You get invited by British, British athletes to go and train somewhere, you go. Um, and I think taking those opportunities, like my parents said when I was younger, take every opportunity, that that was one of the things that really did help me. Taking the opportunities that were given to me, you know, opportunities to go to one of the training camps. Without those, I wouldn't be where I am today. You know, I wouldn't have been able to push as quick as I am because I wouldn't have learned so much and got that level of training that I would have got in the cold at home. <laughs> was that quite daunting, kind of going to these camps kind of for the first time? So I'm guessing you must have met people who had won big medals at you know World Championships and Paralympics at some of these training camps quite quickly. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's the beauty of Paralympic sport is that, you know, the first time that I, I would have been on a racing track I raced against Rich Kiyosaro. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's the beauty of Paralympic sport is that actually it's not, it's not like, that's Usain Bolt. I'm not going to race him until I get to the Olympics. You go, right, right, this is Rich. I'm a 14, 15-year-old lad. He's a 35-year-old bloke, but I'm going to be racing him next week. He's European champion. I've just started. But I think it's that kind of, that's the beauty of it is that, it's a bit more achievable. You know, you can see the goal. You race against the people that you are going to be racing against at the Paralympic Games. So it's, it's just so different to a wide sport. I was about to say that must be kind of quite motivational quite quickly because it gets to the point, I guess, mentally as well. You're thinking kind of, you know, from the perception of the situation, you're thinking, well, I'm here now. You know, this guy's next to me. He's still a human being. He might have won what he has won, but I've, still got to prove myself at some point. But I, if I believe in myself enough, then at the end of the day, he is just another racer. And, you know, I've got age on my side. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's the thing, you know, you, you get on the track and you race who's, who's there to race. You don't, it doesn't matter who you are. And you've, you've got your own personal best you want to be. Obviously got the people in the race that you want to beat as well. But it doesn't really matter whether you get beat or, or you beat them, I think it's the experience of actually racing that you get the most out of. And talking of experience and talking of camps as well, actually, um, am I right in saying you, you were part of the Michael Johnson Young Leaders course when you went, you flew out to Dallas in Texas. Um, how was that experience and how did you get involved in that in the first place? Yeah, that was amazing. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go to Dallas to the Michael Johnson Performance Center in, in Dallas. Um, and, you know, meeting him and being part of his Young Leaders program was amazing. Basically, he brought together, I think there was 10 of us, yes, yeah. so there was 10 people from around the world, uh, from 10 different countries, that were using sport as a kind of, as, as a tool to educate people or raise awareness of certain issues within their community or their uh, um, they were also kind of using sport as that driving force for uh, a change within their community, which I thought was, you know, it was, it was really good. Um, so there was a guy from Jamaica who taught Taekwondo, but within that Taekwondo that he taught, he would um, teach about making sure that you clean your beat, clean the beaches and, making sure that people dispose of their rubbish correctly uh, because that was an issue that he directly um, experienced and they were experiencing within the yeah. Caribbean. There was also a girl from India who was using sport to, um, you know, try and promote um, safe period products for girls and women in her community because that was one of the things that was directly like affecting them as as women within india 
uh, and there was a bit of a stigma around it. So she was trying to um, like shut those stigmas down really through the use of sport and through the use of education. So she wasn't just um, educating young women, she was also educating young men so they knew what actually what was happening as well, which wasn't something that men within India had ever had before. I was about to say, this is the the great thing about sport because it it breaks down boundaries in a way which can create that social change across borders. And the fact that you were the only person, you said 10 people from different countries, so you're probably the only person from uh, Great Britain in that sense. Um, Yes. Must have been quite proud of representing kind of the country in that kind of environment when you hear those stories about other young leaders across the world and how it relates to not just their community, but to kind of the social fabric of what their country stands for and is trying to change kind of a, a top government kind of level as well. Yeah, so I was I was kind of brought there by uh, Panathlon Challenge. So Panathlon are a charity that work with schools to try and promote dis- uh, sport for people with disabilities. Um, and I've been ambassador for them for the last three years, I think. <clears throat> and basically they do multi-sport events that have um you know emphasis on uh like teamwork and the actual fundamentals of movement that you need to be able to function in life so hand-eye coordination or um for example um like coordination things like agility um and i think for me they're kind of the things that every young child would get and I think that if you have a disability it should be no different and that you should get the same opportunities that that your everybody counterparts are getting so that's that you know that's it's a big thing that's very close to my heart and so that's why it was kind of when they approached me to be part of their program and I jumped at it really because I wanted to make sure everyone had the same opportunities I've had so that yeah you know, every every sports hall I go in, I always say, you know, the next Paralympians or Olympians of the future are in these sports halls. And if we don't nurture that talent, then we're not going to have any medalists of the future. Well, this is the thing. I mean, like on, on the last episode with, with Tani, you know, I was hearing about how, like the inside track into kind of the, like the creation of how, you know, she met Seb for the first time and how Seb was so, in, you know, um, instant about trying to get that inspire the generation motto which would eventually you know bring the 30 kids across to Singapore which won the Paralympic and Olympic bid for the London 2012 and beat all the beautiful videos of the Parisian staircases and actually having that emotional value there I think Tani mentioned that you know an IOC member came up to her and said the one thing we've got from London was emotion and that was and that's the same for you in this instance I mean especially with Michael um, going out there did you speak to Michael um, a lot what did he say to you? Do you remember some of those conversations? Yeah, so, you know, we had, um, like, group sessions with him, um, which were kind of him kind of telling us his story about his stroke and about why he brought us there and why he wanted to try and do certain things. Um, there was also, you know, we had a one-to-one with him as well, which was really interesting. And <coughs> Sorry. Um, and he kind of said you know within that one-to-one with me he was asking not only about my community and what I do at home but about my sport as well because he was genuinely actually uh wanting to be involved in that as well and so you know we had conversations around like how he he built his career how he um how he trained certain things like that that would were you know just the same language as what I wanted to speak, really. Um, and, and then he actually had to fly home a little bit early because it was the Diamond Link in London that weekend. I oh, really? Yeah. And I was I was meant to be racing there. So I actually pulled out of that race so that I could be there. Oh, no, the irony of... Oh, man, the irony there is just... I know, I know. I'm not sure whether you've met Michael since then, but I guess the impact of, you know, seeing him kind of at that age, kind of get wanting to get into sport and then 
you know, because Michael's influence is not just within sport, it's within you know, social fabrics of countries as well, and especially in America and, you know, Black Lives <laughs> Matter and everything across with that. Um, that that must have, you know, looking back, that it, it must have been a huge moment for you. Yeah, obviously, you know, we were kind of on the same page with everything that we spoke about because, you know, the values that he felt were the same values that I did. I felt that, you know, he was a big advocate for, within Dallas, trying to provide healthcare to black communities that didn't have access to healthcare and for me you know I kind of identified that I, I kind of had had that kind of identification with that as well as disabled people are a marginalized group I feel in the UK still and we don't have access to certain things they were bodied out people have so you know we could kind of talk about that and talk about how our communities differ but have similarities as well um, which was really interesting. And talking of traveling the world, um, you know, Rio 2016 obviously was on, on the horizon. Um, but the training camps that you had, well, I'm right, so you went out to Australia to train for, for Rio. Um, yeah. That must have been hot, I can imagine, if it was kind of if it was a winter training camp, because obviously it's their summer, isn't it? Yeah, so we go to um, Australia every year in January. Um, so... You know, we get there when, when so normally we get there last week. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, we're not allowed in this year, which is a bit annoying. Uh, it's, it's kind of a bit, a uh, very different year. Um, but, you know, it's, um, we get there when it's cold in the UK. We go over there because we can actually train, can get out on the roads, we get in the gym, on the track there. Infrastructure for sport is just amazing. Um, and it enables us to be able to do, everything we best can for, to prepare for the season coming up. Um, so I've been there you know, four years on the trot now. I've been to Australia in January, so I'm really feeling it this year because I'm actually in the, the January weather and a very cold. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's, it's invaluable to our training, really. Um, so we are due to fly to Dubai instead on Sunday, um, so that's, that's oh, well, nice. we, we timed this podcast well then. Definitely, yeah. So our um, our training camp has been changed from Australia, obviously, because we're not allowed to go into Australia. We'd have to quarantine for two weeks when we got there. Um, so that would be missing, two weeks missed of training. So, you know, we had to make other arrangements. And um, so we booked a, uh, a trip in Dubai instead. So we're going to Dubai for five weeks. Five weeks? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's a very long time as well to be away from home, but it is... You know, it is really good training. So that's that's the uh, that's why we're doing it, really. It's the, it's the dedication. And I guess, kind of, you know, looking back and kind of that dedication towards kind of Rio as well. Um, I'm literally just going to simply ask, how was that experience? Yeah, a Paralympic Games is amazing. Um, that I don't think there's anything that ever rival the Paralympic Games that I was at in Rio. Um, well, hopefully Tokyo later in the year will. Um, but I think... Paralympic Games is just different to anything I'd ever experienced before. Um, you know, I had the best time um, and the, the spending time in the village with friends and, and um, you know, well, I, I actually raced on the very last day. So I had to wait the whole time. The very last day? <laughs> very last day of the Paralympic Games I raced, yeah. So I had to wait the whole time uh, watching everybody else, you know, kind of, Finishing racing, having fun, free McDonald's in the village when you're 17 is very hard to try and. <laughs> um, so I kind of said, right, when I finish racing, that's it. I can do everything that everybody else is doing. Um, I didn't leave the village. I, you know, I just kind of the only time I ever left the village was to go to train the track to train, um, and it was just amazing. I think it was probably the best experience of my life. I was about to say, is that a good thing or? A bad thing that you're going to wait till the last day it was it was very very difficult because i spent so much time thinking about what i was going to be doing so i was part of the four by 400 meter relay and uh, team um, and you know watching all the, the people that were in my team racing their individual events you know that was that was good but i kind of was itching to get on the track a lot um, and you know it made me quicker because i was training well in the warm weather and um, you know, it made me want to want to get on the track. So, it, in a way, it was very difficult. But I think it was good for me that I had that kind of extra little bit of time to prepare. 
So you, so you get to race day then. What's going through your head beforehand and kind of what, what do you think is going to happen or what do you hope will happen? So we, we I, I was the second leg in the relay. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, uh, <clears throat> right, let me start out again. So I was in the, in the, on the, so I'm sick every single day that I race. I get so nervous that I throw up before every single race. Really? Yeah. So the, wow. Paralympic, the Paralympic Games was no different to that. You know, it was... I guess, I'm guessing the Paralympic Games would be the one where you're pretty most sick out of all of them, to be honest. Yeah. So I get so nervous. But I think being part of that team helped a little bit because I had kind of people in the call room to talk to. You know, we, we kind of had a plan before we went in there. And I think it was just... Um, because I've never had on a racing track people to bounce off like that, like I had in basketball, that helped quite a bit. Uh, it made me a little bit less nervous. It made me, you know, kind of a, a bit more excited as opposed to nervous to race. Um, so, you know, I think we, we had to get through the heat first to get into the final. Um, unfortunately, we didn't make it through the heat. Um, we just went, we got, we got beaten. How, how close was it? So we had to do a certain time. So we had to, I think we had to push 317. Uh, no, we had to push 304 and we did a 317. Um, so we were quite a bit out, um, but, you know, I was really happy with the leg that I had run. Um, and I think that's the only thing you can really take away from that. If you have, um, you know, if you're part of a team, but the team possibly lets you down a little bit, you've just got to take the positives where you can find them. And um, so, you know, I looked at it and said, right, well, my leg, I was really, really happy with my leg. So that is, you know, that was the saving grace for me, really, that I got, I could push well for the team and I could put my part of the team team i could help within my part do you know what i mean yeah it's an interesting dynamic it's interesting that you mentioned that actually because you know the contrast between individual events and we'll talk about you know the european champs and the success there in a minute um and kind of the team events and i can imagine if you were part of that jamaican sprinting team in the early 2000s with Johan Blake and Usain yeah. Bolt and being part of that team that you would have felt that you're at least, you know, even if you're not going to be at your best, you've probably got a chance. But then the, there's the other aspect of because the calibre of people around you are so powerful that you just do not want to let that team down. So you're going to press it. I'm guessing it's a very similar dynamic because, you know, I guess deep down, you know that there are weak links, not weak links, but there are weaker links within the team. You know, everyone is different. Everyone is human. Um, and everyone is going to have, they're not going to have exactly the same time unless there's a freakish moment in a race that that might actually happen. Um, so, yeah, I'm guessing for you that what you're saying about taking the positives out of your own performance, is that something which you look back on now and think, yeah, that was the right attitude to have? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it, it, it helped for me. Um, you know, it kind of, I was really, really gutted to not make it through to the final. But as well as that, I kind of vowed then to never just go for part of a relay. I kind of said, right, well, I'm going to have my own individual events. And that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to go for. And then if I get part of a relay, then that's a bonus. And I'll be there and everything will come down to me as opposed to a group of individuals that, coming together as a team because I think as much as we were a team we weren't we weren't a team of four we were four individual athletes pushing a relay team together yeah and and obviously that changed it in Berlin two years later so right European champs 2018 um you know gold and three bronzes I mean it's an amazing achievement um and hopefully it's the start of something special for your career um Kind of looking back on that now, compared to when you were kind of going into that, 
Um, whether you're sick or not, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> well, every, every single race, every single race, yeah. So, like, let's start on the gold then, the relay. Um, you know, how was that? <laughs> yeah, so the, the relay was um, actually my last race of the European Championships. Um, and, you know, I won three bronzes before then in the 100 metres, 200 metres, and 800 metres. Um, and, you know, to try and top that off, obviously, I was part of the relay and we wanted to try and win a medal, a gold medal if I could as well. Um, and I think, you know, we were more of a team than the team I had in, in Rio um, because we all wanted to win for each other. It wasn't, I want to win this gold for me. I want to win this gold for the team. It was, it was, we were such a solid team and we wanted to win it for each other. Um, so, you know, and I think that was more special. And I think the pressure on us as well was a little bit different. It was, it was kind of, I don't want to let this team down. Um, which I think was a really good dynamic for us as a group. We were all quite young. We were all kind of, we, this relay team had never been seen before. This relay event had never been done before that European Championships. Um, so, you know, it was, it was very interesting. You know, we didn't really know how it was going to play out. I don't think anybody really knew how it was going to play out. Well, as well as was, did you think that you were going to go into that knowing that you're going to at least medal or have a good chance we, we, had, we had no clue so I wasn't part of the heat team and um, I actually had a, a different race that day so we had another athlete racing the heat and, and then when he came to the final then I was brought in as oh, so, you just popped up, so you just popped up for the final then yeah so I just that's, that's a good, that's a good way to be that <laughs> yeah it was a it was a quite nice to just kind of uh, be part of the team but actually be brought in as well as the as the final leg to to finish off the championships because that race was actually the last race of the whole games and um, so you know it was it was just I was the last person I was the last first person over the finish line <laughs> at games if you know what I mean yeah uh, I mean were you put into that final team based on your previous performances in the 100 200 800 if you didn't get those would you have even been in the relay team then or uh, well you know it came down to me and Rich Kiyosaro, um and Dylan Lebroy as well so there was the three T54s who would could have been put in um I was second quickest on paper but Rich was ill um so I was brought in as the final leg for that team um I'd been to all the uh, training camps, you know, all the training camps that British would like to put on. And, I, and, it, and it brings back to that, you know, somebody invites you to train, you go and train and you go and learn about the race that somebody wants you to be in. So I, I did all the training and I did all the, you know, the preparation that was part of all that beforehand. Um, so I kind of knew I was going to get put in, in the final um, and, and, and it worked. So, like, on the bronzes then, quickly, um, like, how are they? Because obviously 100, 200, 800 are, well, 200 and 800 are different, of course, but then you do train like a cyclist, so you can kind of prepare for both. Um, is there one that you look back with kind of more regret and then one you kind of look back at kind of more relief overall, or were they all so, similar? So my first was my 200 meter gold medal, uh, bronze medal, sorry. Uh, but it felt like a gold medal for me. You know, it was the first medal that I'd ever won um, at a senior level. And that kind of brought this kind of shift in me as to, right, I belong here now. And I think that was one of the things that clicked in my head to then go, right, you can go in the next race you've got is the, the 400 meters and you can win that. Or you can, you can really seriously compete against the guys that you're racing against. So I think it had this kind of shift in my head that, you know, I used to sit in the call room and look at people and go, you can beat me, you can beat me, and you can beat me. Whereas after that, I sat in the call room and I looked and I'd sit there and go, I can beat you, I can beat you, I can beat you. So I think it was kind of a shift in my head to actually really show that I actually belonged where I was and that I deserved to be there. And like, I guess at the end of the championships, you look back at thinking, yeah, like now... I've got what I've got, but now we have to move on. We have to prepare for obviously the Paralympics in 2020 and then a pandemic hits and then you rethink yeah. the whole thing. Um, but that, if that's the attitude essentially, I guess that you kind of, now this is the start, not obviously the end of, you know, this is just the foundation of a skyscraper that I'm looking to build for future life. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, that, that was the end of that year, but 
obviously we that's you know you've got the medal now that doesn't matter that's in my sock drawer you know it's just it's just there um and it's you know it's a, it's a great memento for what i've what i've achieved but now i want to win better i want the silver i want the gold um so we've got the european championships this year um in june so you know i'm looking to improve upon the medals that i've won last time uh, and hopefully uh, i can do that Moving on with, with life, um, you got to know Hannah as well. And I mean, I recognise the conservatory quite quickly. Um, thank God there's no dog um, yeah. involved in barking in the background of this podcast this time. Um, how did you get to meet Hannah, like overall, firstly? Yeah, so me, me and Han, we met obviously through racing. You know, we were on one of training camps together. We trained together in Loughborough. Um, and I think you just... You kind of gravitate to, towards people who um, have like like-minded people and have the same interests and do the same things as you. So it's kind of the natural progression to our friendship was kind of girlfriend and boyfriend. <laughs> and I'm guessing like other other athletes like yeah, were, were they thinking like, did anyone come up to you like these two kind of like a perfect match or? I don't think anyone's ever voiced any opinion, to be honest. I think everyone's just kind of like, yeah, get on with it. If you, as long as you compete and you and and you can still train and everything, it doesn't matter um, who you're with or whatever. And I think you know it helps that we're both wheelchair racers. We can both train together. We've built a gym in our carriage because we both get what we need to do and what we actually and we can help each other with that. So I think it's more of a help than a hindrance. I would say. I was about to ask kind of asking on it based on kind of obviously Hannah's achieved gold medals at Paralympics. So from a mental perspective as well, um, that you can chat about her, about that kind of stuff. I mean, do you, did you, did you do that often before kind of big races? Just thinking, you know, what tips has she taken from other people that she's met who have been successful and vice versa? Yeah, I suppose, you know, we, we chat about everything. So I think, obviously you know her past races and stuff come up but I think every race is different um my classification is a little bit different to Hannah's I'm a male as opposed to she's a female and I think it's just a bit it, as much as we've got the similarities we're both individual races um so I think that um we can both help each other but I think you know it just kind of making sure that each individual listens to their coaches and you know kind of don't try and contradict what the coach is saying yeah just uh, letting each other kind of get on with what we're doing really and I wanted to chat about you and Hannah as well um, because I, I saw something um, on your Twitter recently and um, you have started to make a few TV appearances and you're on the hit list I'm right yeah, saying which yeah, is like, that's a music show right on, on the BBC yeah. um, how was that? did you it do was, well? Uh, we got knocked out in the first round Uh our music knowledge was quite limited, um, but you know we enjoyed it. And you know, and again, like I've said so many times in this interview, that it's you know someone gave us the opportunity, so we took it because without those opportunities, you don't bring disability into the forefront of people's television screens. Um, so you know, I think you know taking those opportunities and and showing off disability on TV is really important. And um, you know, we both enjoyed doing it. Uh, we, we were up against uh, Fleur East and her sister and Roman Kemp and Martin Kemp. So they were all people that were in the music industry. I was about so, to say, you're on a music show against the Kemps and Fleur East. Yeah. So, I mean, good, luck with, they, good, good luck with that one. Yeah, they knew a lot more music than we did, but I think we held our own, so it wasn't too bad. Nice. Uh, just quickly before finishing, talking about representation on, on TV, um, it's been a common thread to be fair through kind of the uh, the three series that I've done with the podcast um, that everyone has talked about from Ellie Simmons to Salee Pearson to Tani Gray kind of athletes who have made it um, at a very very high level to then you know Sophie Camlish and Ali Jawad and Charlotte Henshaw kind of lower down I'd say um, you know like TV and disability is something which I think has taken off quite a lot from London 2012, you know, Channel 4, you know, the last leg. Um, but for you, how, where do you see it going? Where do you think it should go? And how far do you think 
it, we've come so far. Yeah, I think it's, it's so different than when I was younger. I never saw anybody on TV with a disability. Like Adi Adeptan was probably the only person that I would associate with being disabled. You know, uh, when I was eight, I wouldn't have known anybody. Um, so I think, you know, it has come a very, very long way. You know, we were, we were looking off for Hannah to be on BBC Crunchfile. And, you know, and I think that, you know, we've got Frank Gardner, a news reporter, he's disabled. And I think that it's, it's kind of going... It's kind of bringing disability into the forefront and it's putting it in people's living rooms so that people can't ignore it anymore. Um, but obviously, I think there's still a very, very long way to go. Um, and I think that it's, uh, you know, it's not quite in the forefront of people's minds yet when they're, you know, doing stuff. Because I think that, you know, disability is, is still quite a taboo subject in the UK. And I think it's, um, you know, we're still quite marginalised as a, as a community. So I think that, you know, we've gone a long way, but we've still got a very, very long way to go. Yeah, I mean, like completely agree, man. And, you know, looking forward then Tokyo coming up. Um, and I guess it, that would be actually a good test to kind of, you know, test people's kind of views on on disability, kind of their perceptions and, you know, social media at that specific moment in time, but also kind of, I guess, channels obligations to how they kind of put out media coverage about the Paralympics. Um How's the training going in your, in your garage at the minute for that? And uh, what are you looking forward to the most over the next few months, if there is anything to look forward to? Yeah, it's going good. Obviously, you know, we're going to Dubai on Sunday, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, you know, tr- just training at home uh, is very different to training on a track that we can't access. Uh, we've got rollers, um, which is like a big drum that we just put our chair on and push. But, you know, it's, it's not the same as training on a track. Uh, so I think, you know, we're in the privileged position to be able to go to Dubai and train um, and you know that should hopefully put us in good stead for the rest of the year the European Championships and then Paralympic Games in Tokyo. Well hopefully Dubai is amazing and hopefully you know you know European Champs and Paralympics go go swimmingly as well. Um, before we end uh, I always do this with every person who's been on so far. Have you got like a message for anyone who you know is aspiring to be in sport like a young a young Nathan um, kind of growing up um, like what would your message be to them yeah, you know it'd be again I've said it so many times but it'd be, it'd be the emphasis on try every single sport you can take every single opportunity that you're given and then find your niche from there because it doesn't matter if you try a thousand things and don't enjoy any of them but that a thousand and one that might be the one thing that you're good at you enjoy and that you can excel at Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter it's at EssexLadPara and Instagram is at EssexLadParalympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Farewell and we'll see you soon.